Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's been a big week for the European Union. Enlargement is a vital policy for the European Union. And this has been my main message since the beginning of my mandate. Completing our union is the call of history. It is the natural horizon of the European Union. On Wednesday, European Commission Chief Ursula von der Leyen announced that the Commission is recommending opening accession talks with Ukraine and Moldova. It is now 10 years ago that the protests on Maidan started. Maidan protests where people were shot because they wrapped themselves into a European flag. And now, 10 years later, today is a historic day because today the Commission recommends that the Council opens accession negotiations with Ukraine and with Moldova. The proposal, which still needs to be approved by EU member states, marks a remarkable turnaround for the EU, which until just recently showed little appetite to add new members. Ultimately, it took war on the European continent, Russia's full-fledged invasion of Ukraine last year, to put the question of EU enlargement back on the agenda. I'm Suzanne Lynch, host of EU Confidential. Now, before we get into discussion about EU enlargement with our panel, I just wanted to turn to some breaking news in Europe this week, and that was the resignation of Portugal's Prime Minister, Antonia Costa. To discuss more about this, I'm joined by Politico's own Aitor Hernandez-Morales. Hi there, Aitor. Bring us up to speed. Yeah, it's uh, it's really been a crazy development. So on uh, Tuesday morning, we woke up to news of police raids in the prime minister's official residence, that's the Palace of Sao Bento in central Lisbon, and several government ministries. And it wasn't really clear what was happening. The prime minister, Antonio Costa, who's been in office for eight years, quickly scurried off to the president of the Republic's palace, and he held a long meeting with him there. And it wasn't quite clear if he was directly implicated, even though it was clear uh, from the start that people very close to him were being snatched away by police. So by midday, we finally had confirmation from Portuguese prosecutors that Costa himself was being investigated as part of this probe. So What this probe is all about is corruption and corruption linked to green energy in Portugal. The focus here is on strategies that were very much pushed by the EU. So part of the investigation centers on mining concessions for lithium in northern Portugal. And that's very much directly linked to the EU's critical raw material strategy. 
And then the other part was a uh, green hydrogen mega project in uh, Sinish, which is a, a major port a little south of Lisbon. And in that case, again, we have an overlap with green policies that's mainly the EU's Green Deal clean energy push. So in both cases, it seems that people involved with these schemes were at least evoking the prime minister's name to have procedures sped through and streamlined. And uh, Portuguese police uh, believe that there was corruption involved. And so they are looking into all of that. So what happens next? I mean, Portugal is now without a prime minister. Yes and no. So we actually have a very interesting situation, which is on Thursday night, the president of the Republic, Marcelo Rebelo de Sousa, took to the air and announced that he was dissolving parliament, but not yet. So uh, Parliament will remain in session until the 2024 budget is passed because that is considered essential to the country's economic stability. And then it will be dissolved in early December, but new elections will only be held in March of 2024. So the catch here is, even though Costa has submitted his resignation, he remains the country's official prime minister until the parliament is dissolved and he will remain caretaker prime minister until fresh elections are held. And of course, this is very interesting from an EU perspective, given that Antonio Costa is often named as a possible candidate to become the next European Council president. Obviously a developing story. We'll keep you updated on politico.eu. Thanks to ITOR for that. Thank you. Now, turning back to enlargement. The issue has been the talking point here in Brussels for many months just a few days ago, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen did a whistle-stop tour of the Western Balkan countries and Ukraine ahead of this week's report card on accession. I'm here to tell you and the citizens of North Macedonia that you are on a good track to join the European Union. Bosnia and Herzegovina's future is in the European Union. We want to have you as a full member. We want Serbia to join our union. It is a unique opportunity right now that no one else can match. Looking at Kosovo, my first message is Kosovo is making steady progress in EU reforms. I'm confident Ukraine can reach its ambitious goal of moving to the next stage in the accession process. Now, as expected, the Commission did publish their annual progress report, which outlines the prospects of all 10 candidate countries who are hoping to join the EU. To discuss this more, I'm joined by Barbara Moons, Chief EU Correspondent, Jakob Hankavella, author of Brussels Playbook, and Sam Green from the Centre for European Policy Analysis. Hi there, all. Hi. Hi, Suzanne. Hello. Barbara, starting with you, on Wednesday, we had this big announcement by European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. Now, this is a report that the Commission comes out with every year, a kind of report card on how various countries who are in the waiting line to join the EU perform. But this year, there has been a lot more focus on it. Maybe you could explain why. Yes, exactly. So there has been a certain enlargement fatigue before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. A lot of countries, especially in the Western Balkan, who were in the process, but there was not much political will to get that process moving. That changed, obviously, with the war in Ukraine. There was a sort of process to get Ukraine and Moldova faster into those, to those talks. And there was a lot of spotlight on the decision on Wednesday, because, as was expected, uh, the European Commission suggested to start a 
succession talks with Ukraine and Moldova and also move forward with other countries like Georgia. And the Commission recommends that the Council grants Georgia the status of a candidate country on the understanding that certain reform steps are taken. That is not a final decision. We still have to have a political backing by EU leaders at the December summit, but it is a very big step for Ukraine and Moldova. And it's not a coincidence, I think, that von der Leyen, ahead of this announcement, went to the Western Balkans, went to Kiev. She already went to Moldova previously to have the discussion with leaders there and also to give a, a sign, really a political sign of, you know, we take this very seriously and this is where our political minds are focused on now. And you were on that trip uh, with the president of the commission to Kiev last weekend. We might come back to you on that. So, Jakob, as Barbara explained there, there was this report card that came out this week. But there are a number of countries that were covered by this. Right, right. So there's 10 countries that are potential future members of the EU. And the report looks at the 10 of them. And for three, it says they're advanced enough so that we can actually start accession negotiations. So we can start talks on the nitty-gritty of joining the EU, and these three are Ukraine, Moldova, and Bosnia. The Commission also recommends the opening of EU accession negotiations with Bosnia and Herzegovina once the necessary degree of compliance with the membership criteria is achieved. Whereas other countries are in different stages of their accession. One of the uh, debates we've been hearing about for months here is that, you know, is it fair that Ukraine is getting all this attention and you've got other countries, specifically those six Western Balkan countries, Mm -hmm. but even Turkey, which has been in negotiations of some kind with the EU for decades, that are kind of at the back of the queue? I mean, what else did this report say about those other countries? Yeah, so that was a big discussion leading up to Wednesday's announcement, the fact that this process still has to be merit-based, as they call it, so really taking into account the process on the ground and not just the political will and also the political sign towards Ukraine and and the people fighting there that maybe one day they will be part of of the EU. So what you saw on Wednesday, there was also a lot of movement on some of the countries in the Western Balkan. That is also something that will be more discussed at the December European Council. And also, I think, with underline and other stressed is that Ukraine and Moldova and especially Ukraine, despite the fact that they are in the midst of a war, actually also made progress. And we also heard that in Kiev from Zelensky and from other political actors in Ukraine that they don't expect to get special treatment, but they do want acknowledgement that they are doing these reforms very fast at the same time that they are fighting, fighting the Russians in this war. And I remember at a previous point, the commission had set out seven milestones that the Ukrainians would have to reach before they'd be given the green light for the next step. I mean, where are they on those uh, seven recommendations? Yeah, so four of them are okay, And then with three others, um, so minorities, corruption, the oligarchization, which is a word I cannot pronounce in English. Um, and okay, I, that's a good example of a, a br- Brussels speak. Exactly. Word. I'm not sure if it's even a word in English, but it is commission speak. So on those three steps, they uh, still have work to be done, but still the commission is recommending that we move forward in the process, which will then be a discussion by leaders. And I think we also have to acknowledge that this is one very important, very symbolical step in the process, but the process will still be long and very difficult. Mm. Jakob, I mean, you've been writing about this in various ways in Playbook each morning. One country which has been interesting here, as it always is in the EU, is France. I mean, traditionally, there were a number of countries that were pretty lukewarm about the idea of expanding the EU even further after that big wave of enlargement back in 2004. And chief among them 
with France. But there has been something of a change now. President Macron was speaking at the Bratislava summit back uh, earlier in this year and it was a kind of a reach out to uh, Central and Eastern European countries and, and there was a sense that the position in France was changing. It seems to have changed. France has seemed to have come around to this idea of enlargement. Right. So uh, Macron made, a, you could say, a big U-turn. It was a big political move to say that he's in favour of enlargement, especially that Ukraine's future is in the EU. But he's also linked it to something that France has always wanted for a very long time, which is reforming the EU in order to have uh, what you can call Europe à la carte or Europe with several speeds. Um, basically, this idea that you have a core that moves faster on integration, that moves on things like taxes, budget, further integration, political integration. And then you have like a periphery or several different degrees of integration where some countries would just be members of the single market. Some countries that are right now members of the EU but might want uh, less integration, like Hungary, could then kind of join one of those outer circles. So Macron's bet and that of the French government, but several other EU countries as well, actually, is to link these two things to say, yes, we are in favor of Ukraine joining the EU, but it has to be done in parallel to negotiations on reforming the EU. That's interesting. I was in Berlin last week and there was a conference that Annalena Baerbock, the German foreign minister, hosted about the EU with EU ministers from across the block. And one of the points she made, she made this this quite you know strong speech saying that the EU needs to reform in order to enlarge. But some of the things that she was suggesting may not go down well with maybe some of the smaller countries. For example, she talked about reducing the number of commissioners, the idea that the commission is becoming too unwieldy. Uh, she talked about getting rid of the veto, that using qualified majority voting in more instances like taxation and foreign policy. But I know from covering this for years as an Irish journalist, I mean, that's something, for example, Ireland is not going to back. Right. It likes its veto over taxation. Barbara, how much of a discussion is there going on about this idea of needing to reform the EU. I mean, these are big kind of proposals mm. now that the EU is putting forward. Yeah, definitely. And I think as Jakob said, one year ago, you know, these were thoughts that some officials had. Now you really see up to the leaders level this discussion of, you know, we have to reform the EU if we also want to be ready to absorb, as they call it, some of these new countries, especially Ukraine, which has a very large population and which will be coming out of a war. So that discussion is, is ongoing and there's a big chance that at a certain point it will be politically linked to have like a sort of parallel process of EU enlargement at the same time intra-European reform. And indeed, there are lots of ideas around at the moment. The European Parliament President, Roberta Metzler, for example, told our colleague Eddie Wax a few weeks ago in an interview that perhaps Ukraine could have observer MP, MEPs mm-hmm. at the European Parliament. But of course, that started a lot of conversation uh, from some people who said the European Parliament is big enough. Does it really need uh, extra observer MEPs? Sam, bringing you in uh, from the Centre for European Policy Analysis. Look, big picture here. I mean... How important is it, do you think, for the EU's future? How significant is this moment that the EU is now seriously considering opening up to the East further and ultimately allowing in countries like Ukraine into uh, the club? Well, I think it's a massively important uh, moment. I wouldn't call any of this a foregone conclusion, right? As we've been discussing, there are a tremendous number of issues that have to be resolved, any one of which could stymie this. And there are others that you haven't mentioned. I mean, under current calculations, under current formulas, right? If if Ukraine enters the European Union, it will absorb more or less the entirety of the common agricultural policy, right? These sorts of things are going to be very difficult to negotiate. 
But as your colleagues have mentioned, you know, the reality is that it's not just that Europe needs to reform to enlarge. It has needed to enlarge to face this enlargement in order to unstick, I think, some of the, the questions on reform. I think this has the potential to both add a lot of impetus and, and energy to conversations that have been stuck for a very long time uh, and that have the potential to open up new possibilities for Europe, but also I think represents you know, a, a sort of, of a geopolitical awakening from a European perspective. There had been up until certainly 2022, possibly, you know, things began to change after 2014 and the initial invasion of Ukraine. But there had been an approach of what I would call sort of benign neglect to the Eastern partnership, to the Eastern neighborhood, to that territory between Russia and, and the European Union, and certainly to the Western Balkans as well. There had been uh, an assumption that, you know, these countries will be able to sort things out on their own and that they will eventually be attracted sort of by the inherent benefits of, of, of European integration, even if Europe doesn't actually do a lot in that direction. I think what has been learned over the last couple of years, certainly, is that that neglect is not, in fact, so benign and that it comes at a very real cost to the European Union. So as costly as it is, as it has been to support Ukraine through this war, and as costly as it will be to integrate Ukraine, Moldova, and others into the European Union, I think there's a growing understanding uh, and a fundamental shift in understanding about the fact that not bringing them in may end up being considerably more costly. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we interviewed the foreign minister of Austria, uh, Minister Schallenberg, a few months ago on the podcast, and he was making that point that at other moments in European history, they've put aside concerns about the situation in the country. He was talking about Spain when it was admitted, Greece when it was admitted, that there were still early days of democracy. And yet, you know, the right thing to do at that time was to absorb these countries into the EU. And as you explained there, it, it seems to be that kind of moment that they realise you know, we have ignored this part of our continent. But in the meantime, we're playing with fire there because, you know, if you take the eye off the ball, well, then Russia will get in there. China has got influence, particularly in the Western Balkans, etc. Now, we'll just take a quick pause and we'll be back shortly with the rest of our panel discussion. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Jakob, do you think this is an example? I mean, we've heard about Ursula von der Leyen wanted this to be a geopolitical commission. Now, we see how difficult that has been, how, how complex that can get. You know, her, her recent visit to Israel, for example, and then there was a whole debate about, you know, who is she speaking for when it comes to European foreign policy. But this development this week undoubtedly shows that the EU and the European Commission 
is opening up, as Sam said there, and is realising, you know, it's not just about a club, about a single market. It's about much more than that. Right, exactly. I think a decision to open accession negotiations with uh, Ukraine, Moldova, but also Bosnia and Herzegovina, which was a surprise to many, is an example of a more geopolitical commission, as Sam said. Because if you, at least as many commission officials tell us, if you look at the the facts, um, these countries haven't really fulfilled all the criteria yet. And actually, the report says that, as Barbara said. And still, the commission says, politically, we we want to give the signal that we're opening the door to these accession talks. And they square the circle of kind of keeping it a merit-based approach, but at the same time giving this political signal. They square the circle by saying, we will open the talks, we recommend opening the, the talks now, but we will actually only open them once you have met these criteria. As you were writing this week in Playbook, Jakob, you made the point that the whole, one of the ironies here is that, you know, even if the member states and members say yes, as we know from Turkey, yeah, they can say yes because right. maybe it's never going to happen. You know, that this thing is could stretch on for years. Or do you think this time it's different? I agree. I, I think especially when it comes to Ukraine, it's going to take at least until there's a clear border for the country. And most ministers we speak to off the record tell us that they hope that by the time these negotiations progress, there will be some kind of settlement. But of course, this is going to take, this could take years. But there's again a kind of a, a twist here that even though they're at war, the, the, you know, the Ukrainians themselves say this, that the promise of EU membership or the prospect of EU membership has in fact allowed them to push through changes politically that in normal times they probably might not have done. So perhaps a little bit quicker than we thought. I mean, Barbara, you're just back from Ukraine. I mean, what were your impressions of that trip? You travelled with the president of the European Commission and Mm. commission officials. I mean, what's the mood in Kiev? Are they hopeful? I mean, we talk about war fatigue in the West. I mean, this week even, President Zelensky is trying to keep his own country together on, Mm -hmm. uh, on this. Yeah, exactly. I think the context was very interesting in the sense that this this trip had been scheduled beforehand because of this report card and, and this decision. Um, but it was a good timing for the EU in the sen- and for Ukraine itself in the sense that everyone was talking about the war in the Middle East and the, the shift of focus towards the Middle East. And it was a very clear sign from the EU by the presence of the European Commission president to say, standing next to the Ukrainian President Zelensky, that, you know, this is important to us. We will stand by you as long as it takes. All the messages that they have sent before, but that were important to say again this time because of the war in the Middle East. And to also acknowledge the work that has been done to prepare this future accession and to give a sense of, you know, we have not forgotten you. I think that was a a very clear message. Zelensky looked very tired, to be be honest. European counterparts also acknowledged that on background. But at the same time, he also made very clear that, you know, we don't have a choice. There is no alternative. So we will keep fighting. We will keep fighting for the attention of the West. And this happened just among comments in The Economist that, you know, there was a certain stalemate in the war, certain fatigue. So Zelensky tried to fight back against that and, and stress that, you know, they will keep going whatever it takes. Sam, some final thoughts from you. I mean, you mentioned there, like, we're only at the beginning of this process, uh, really. I mean, what? how do you see this playing out in the months or indeed years to come? 
Well, first of all, this process isn't happening in a vacuum, right? So this is happening at the same time that there are conversations about rebuilding Ukraine, tremendous amount of investment in reconstruction. There will also be a, a, a NATO summit in Washington this summer at which we are expecting further progress towards uh, NATO membership for Ukraine. And these things feed on, uh, but also depend on each other. It also feeds into the decisions that you know Vladimir Putin will be making himself about how to prosecute this war, what kind of resources to put in, and really what his prospects are. Uh, it will feed into decisions being made here in Washington and Capitol Hill about the investments that they're going to make in Ukraine. They will want to see that there is a, a European trajectory for Ukraine as well. And, and it will feed into decisions being made by private businesses right, who will want to know what uh, sort of a Ukrainian economy they are investing in, one that's going to be trading with Europe or one that's going uh, maybe not so much to be headed in, the, in that direction. And so uh, I think it's important to understand uh, and make sure that the whatever the process is, it does not get bogged down in uh, sort of the difficulties of internal European politics, uh, but that it does recognize the broader geostrategic, geopolitical, geoeconomic implications of of these decisions and even of the words used. If somebody says, yes, we can start the conversations now, but this is going to be a generational thing or two generations down the road, or it may never happen, right? That reverberates in Kiev, it reverberates in Moscow, it reverberates in, in Washington, and it is incumbent upon, I think, European leaders to be cognizant of that. Well, no doubt we are going to get more clarity, uh, more perspectives on this next month at that December European Council. Thanks, Barbara, Jakob and Sam for joining us. Thanks, Suzanne. You're welcome. Thanks. Now, before we go, we're joined by Politico's Head of Audio, Anne McElvoy. Anne, good to have you back on the podcast. Lovely to be back on with you, Suzanne. Now, you're, of course, a host of our sister podcast, Powerplay. And you do have a guest this week that our listeners here would be very interested in. And that is Greek Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis. That's right. And one of the reasons, Suzanne, we were very keen to talk to him at the moment is partly because of the crisis in the Middle East. And Greece plays a significant role there, both geopolitically, but also, I think, speaks quite strongly for the southern flank of the EU. Mitsotakis, the prime minister, is re-elected. He's got a quite strong pulpit. And it was really interesting how he chose to use it. So what was his view on this uh, Middle East issue at the moment, Anne? What was very interesting, Suzanne, was that we actually went back to Mr. Mitsotakis because the situation on the ground was moving so fast. And you'll have seen this as well, covering Brussels. What I'm seeing moving around Europe quite a lot at the moment is there was that early strong support for Israel, a kind of whatever it takes vibe that was coming from European leaders. I think that is, if not fragmenting, it is getting much more nuanced. And listeners might be interested in how Kyriakos Mitsotakis phrased that. And it's along the lines that Israel needs to to take care, perhaps take more care. So I think that the mood, because of the events on the ground in Gaza and the damage there and the human so-called collateral damage, but the images that are going around and people are watching, politicians are aware that public mood is a bit unstable. He also wants to be seen to be taking what's happening in Gaza seriously and send a, a warning back to Israel. Mm, that sense, capturing that sense now that Israel could indeed squander that public support it had at the beginning as this war continues in Gaza. Very interesting. And other issues you guys discussed? I mean, for example, uh, we know here that Ursula von der Leyen paid a trip to, to Greece over the summer. Yes, I did tease him about that, Suzanne. I was in Greece at the time as well. And I think actually the story was 
was largely broken by Politico. And there he was in Crete at his residence with Ursula von der Leyen. You yeah, took uh, Ursula then, von der Leyen on holiday the to next, Greece. Uh, or she came on, on a, a vacation to Greece. She did. And I realized, you know, I, it's sort of strange why sometimes people are always uh, looking for a subplot. And what is essentially a, a good personal relationship that uh, I think is, is important. I mean, at the end of the day, we invest in these good personal relationships, but uh, I mean, the institutional independence uh, is guaranteed and we're all, you know, professional. Was there downtime and was there we're, a bit of beach, was there a bit of beach going on there? I saw you sitting all, on uncomfortable I mean, we chairs. Are, we, are pro- we are professional politicians, uh, but at the end of the day, getting to know our interlocutors better on a personal basis, I think, is, is quite important. But I think for Mr. Mitsotakis, that is a sign that Greece is, if you like, back in the European fold uh, after the, the near Brexit crisis and the years when it was seen as very much the problem child of Southern Europe. And it's it's not too bad if you could persuade Ursula von der Leyen to go on holiday and spend time with you. He said it was a private visit. He wouldn't tell me if they'd gone swimming together. I like to think they didn't spend all their time sitting on very hot plastic chairs at about 90 degrees. Yes, the old business trip excuse she was using there, it seemed. Thanks so much for that. And we will have a link to that episode for our listeners in our show notes. Thank you very much. Lovely to be on the show. And that's it for this week on EU Confidential. We love to hear from our listeners, so do send us a message at podcast at politico.eu with ideas for guests or topics. And remember to follow us on your favourite app. Thank you this week to our executive producer for audio in Berlin, Christina Gonzalez, and to Dionysturis, our senior audio producer here in Brussels. See you next week.